So it's good to be back. Uh, so two weeks ago, uh, I, I preached and then got on a plane and headed to Israel with a group of 30 from our church. And then uh, Friday, I got off a plane uh, from that same trip to Israel and then am here with you. And uh, I will say, yesterday, I thought to myself, Rod, what were you thinking uh, of preaching? Like, we have so many good communicators in our church. Like, why did you not get one for this weekend? And uh, yeah, someone just clapped a lot. That's right. And, um, but uh, then I got here today and I heard the body of Christ worshiping together here at Fairfax. And I was reminded, that's why I'm here, is that I love this congregation, love being here, uh, and just so great to be in the house of the Lord. So, um, so if you thought you were going to get away with not hearing anything about my trip to Israel, sorry, because you are. Um, so like I said, Friday night we got back, we had 30 that went, and uh, this is a picture of, uh, I think, all 30 of us that was taken uh, on the Sea of Galilee. We got to be in a boat and uh, be on the Sea of Galilee and have that whole experience was just fantastic. It was an incredible, incredible group. A lot of them are here today, and uh, I got to know, you know, it's a large church, and so sometimes you don't get to know, as the pastor, I don't get to know everyone on a personal Basis, and that's kind of the one thing that I mourn in these kinds of experiences. I get to know folks uh, uh, much better, uh, it's, uh, too too much better sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so I got to like, like, well, they don't need to take any personality tests because now I know their personalities and how they function. And it was it was just really cool. Uh, to be with this group. We had so much fun and we laughed and we cried and we experienced God in just uh, so many fresh ways. Um, and we visited a number of the sites that we read about in scripture. That's what's so cool about a trip like this. And if you've never done this, I hope someday you'll get a chance to do it. And many of the sites were identified as early as the third century AD by Constantine's mother, Helena. And um, after she became a follower of Jesus, some of you know this story, after she became a follower of Jesus, uh, Helena's work, life work kind of began, uh, became to go to Israel and to identify, to go to the Holy Land, identify the locations related to Jesus. And it was based on the, ident the identification of those places was based on strong oral tradition, which we don't get today, but which is like incredibly reliable uh, and went on for thousands of years. And so to have oral tradition that was like 200 years old is like very reliable oral tradition that had arisen in the first few centuries. So she was able to identify many of the sites that folks now visit when they go to Israel. And other important locations have been identified by archaeologists who have made uh, some amazing, amazing, archaeology is a relatively new science, and over the last century or so, they have made some amazing discoveries in recent years, and more is being uncovered. And in many cases, uh, you may not know the absolute precise spot in which an event took place, but it still is amazing to know and to think about the fact of being within a few meters of the place where Jesus was born, where he preached his first sermon in Nazareth, the precipice that he was taken to after that sermon to be thrown off and 
killed, not because the sermon was bad, but because it challenged the status quo. I've preached some really bad sermons in my day. And fortunately, no one has led me to a precipice afterwards, after the sermon. And for Jesus, again, it was because the sermon was bad, but he dared to expand the kingdom to move it beyond something that was just for a particular group of people and was accessible to every single person in the world. That is the message of the gospel. To be within a few meters of where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount and healed the man who was led down, let down through the roof by his friends and turned the water into wine, all of that. To be on a boat on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus calmed the storm, where he walked on the water, where he cooked a breakfast on the shore and restored Peter to ministry after he had failed Jesus so miserably. To be within meters of where Jesus gathered with his disciples in an upper room for one last supper. To be in a garden where Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done while his disciples slept, to be in the place where he was arrested and tried and led to a hill called Golgotha and placed on a tomb and crucified and placed in a tomb and then on the third day rose from that same tomb. And that's just a few of the places where we visit on this whirlwind 12-day journey. Uh, one of the things that they remind you of when you're in Israel and, and uh, the guides talk about is that if you think you went to Israel on vacation, you are sadly mistaken because it is no vacation and you end up exhausted after your time, but it is an exhaustion and an experience that you will never forget and will shape your life for the rest of your life. And for the majority of our journey, we were led by an amazing, amazing guide, Leah. Um, and Leah was this perfect combination of uh, encyclopedic biblical knowledge like I've never heard before and a wicked sense of humor that perfectly matched the Fairfax ethos. I told her, you have now become an honorary member of Fairfax. Like that sense of humor fits right in with our community. Leah grew up in the Netherlands. She was educated in the United States and then she moved to Israel over 20 years ago. And in addition to leading tour groups, she works, and this is what I found most interesting, she works with a group that is bringing together school children from different religions and different ethnicities within Israel to better understand each other and to chart a very, very different and more hopeful future for that conflict-ridden land. Uh, we also had a chance to uh, go to the River Jordan and to baptize some of our folks. And one of the things that was really cool about that, we had a number of folks that were baptized. And when we got done, um, there was a group of three uh, people that were there from uh, Colombia, South America. And um, yeah, can we hear it for Colombia? Yeah, so... So it was really cool because uh, they had come... On this little pilgrimage, three of them, they were there with an Israeli guide and they had come to the River Jordan to be baptized, but they had no one to baptize them. And they'd made this whole journey and the guide was kind of distraught in like, what am I gonna do? I don't know what I'm gonna do. And they saw our group and they saw 
me baptizing all these folks and they waited and we had a lot of folks that got baptized and they waited 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 and finally we were done and I was getting ready to come up out of the River Jordan and uh, one of the individuals came down to me and he said, you know, we uh, have come all the way from Columbia and wanted to get baptized and uh, they come from a background where I think they were baptized as infants but had never been able to be baptized since uh, they had come to believe. And we have a lot of folks in our church that that's their story where they were baptized as infants but hadn't yet had an opportunity to be baptized since they believed in Jesus and that was their situations and they said, would you baptize us? And I said, absolutely. And this is a picture of, uh, yeah. Picture of the three individuals. And um, what an amazing honor to be a part of that God-ordained experience and to celebrate uh, life transformation and the transforming power of the gospel that transcends locations and backgrounds and and everything, and, um, and to be reminded again of uh, how powerful what Jesus has done for us. And we were also in places chronicled in 1 Samuel that we are studying in this um, series that we're going through. We were in the place where Hannah prayed for a son, and then where she dedicated that son to the Lord. We were in a place where the Ark of the Covenant Resided. We were in the place where Samuel anointed Saul, which Josh did such an amazing job of unpacking last week. And we were in Bethlehem, the place where when Saul became disobedient, God sent Samuel to anoint David to be the next king of Israel. And that's the story that we're looking at um, today. Now, the story of David's anointing is a fascinating story. It's told in 1 Samuel 16. And uh, we're going to look at some verses. We'll have them up on the screen. If you have your Bibles with you, you want to grab a Bible out of the seat there, you can do that. And it begins this way, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? There's all this stuff that we missed um, between... The text that Josh dealt with last week and where we are in chapter 16, it has to do with Saul's disobedience. He says, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse out of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, between chapter 9, which uh, we looked at last week, and chapter 16 that we're looking at today, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot takes place. But the most significant thing that takes place is Saul's growing disobedience to the Lord. He has increasingly leaned into his own strength. He is powerful. He is gifted. He is tall. He is um, a strong leader. All of those things. But he has increasingly leaned into his own strength. Something I think that all of us are tempted to do. To lean into our own gifts, our own talents, our own passions, our own abilities. He does that. It's not new to just Saul. All of us struggle with that. He begins to lean into his own strength and not God's strength as he leads Israel. And the result is that God eventually removes his favor from Saul as king. Never a good thing when God removes his favor from you or what you are doing. And as chapter 16 begins, Saul is still king, but God has already identified the person he wants to become the next king. 
And it's one of Jesse's sons. Now, Jesse lives in Bethlehem. So Samuel heads off to Bethlehem to anoint a king who won't become a king for a while, but who God has already chosen as the next king. And when you get to the end of verse 1, God says, I have chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. In the Hebrew, it literally says, I see myself a king. In other words, God is saying, I, I'm looking at Jesse's sons. And you know what I see among Jesse's sons? I see a king. I see a king among Jesse's sons. And when Samuel gets to Bethlehem, we immediately begin to understand that the things that the world values and the things that God values are often very, very different. Look at verses six and seven. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things made that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Eliab is the oldest son of Jesse. And when Samuel sees him, he immediately thinks that God's anointing is upon him. Why? Because he looked like what the culture thought a king should look like. First of all, he was the oldest son. And back then, the oldest son got everything. Everything. All the money, all the attention, all of the inheritance. The oldest son got everything. I, I just want to take a little poll. Are there any oldest sons here? Let me just, just put your hands up. I'm not going to make fun of you, okay? So... <laughs> I'm just going to say you were born in the wrong century, okay? I just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because back in the day, the oldest son got everything. And uh, my, uh, my two older brothers said that in our family, it was the youngest son who got everything. Uh, that was me. Uh, by the way, anyone here who's an oldest son or daughter who would agree with the statement that it's the youngest now who gets everything. Can I just see your hands? Yeah. All righty. And we'll, we have a class coming up for that later. And we'll, we'll process that with you. And I know it's scarring and all of that. And those of you that are the youngest, hey, okay. Uh, we, we're going to form a small group and uh, yeah, it's the entitled group. Okay. Anyway, so so that was the one, because he was the oldest son. That was one of the reasons why he thought, Samuel thought, oh, this has got to be the king. Secondly, Eliab was good looking. And this was a culture that almost deified uh, external beauty. I, I am so glad that we've moved past all of that in the 21st century. Like, we have so much evolved beyond that. And, uh, and thirdly, Eliab was tall. And for a king and a warrior, physical size was an incredibly important trait. One of my favorite movies of all time is Braveheart. And those of you under 30 can Google that. You'll find out what that was all about and uh, check that out. You can do it now, actually, if you want to. 
And uh, the great Scottish hero and warrior that the movie was based on, William Wallace, was reported to be six foot five inches tall. When the average height of uh, the average man back then was about, this was in the 1200s, was about five foot six. So he was about a foot taller than the average man. And one of the indicators of his height was that he had a broad sword that was five feet six. His broadsword was as tall as the average height of a man back then, five feet six inches long. And I love the movie, incredible movie. Uh, but one of the ironies of the movie is that William Wallace was played by Mel Gibson, who is uh, uh, short, who is not a tall man. And, and they actually, in a funny way, they point that out a couple of times in the movie, the difference between uh, William Wallace's size and, and if everyone knew that he was just such a kind of a huge guy and, and the fact that Mel Gibson was not. Now, the reason you wanted your kings and your warriors to be big men is that you look to them for protection. You look to the king, you look to the warriors for safety. And so you looked at someone like that and you said, that's the kind of person I want on my team. I want the big guy on my team. And that's basically the same response that Samuel has when he sees Eliab. He thinks this is clearly the person that God doesn't just want on his team, but this is clearly the person that God wants leading his team. But God says, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now that statement is huge because it is a countercultural redefinition of beauty from God's perspective. It's reminding us that God sees true beauty and that true beauty is always internal. This text is a reminder that one of the abiding problems in every culture, not just our culture, in every culture, one of the abiding problems in every culture from Samuel's time to ours is an obsession with the externals. Physical beauty, success, credentials, talent, and the list just goes on and on and on. We are obsessed with the externals. We are distracted with the externals. We are fixated upon the externals. And we live in a culture that has taken this abiding problem that has always been there and infinitely increased it. We have become obsessed with physical beauty and success and credentials and talent, maybe more than any other culture in history. So God is reminding us here that we should go against the flow of culture and focus on internal beauty because external beauty is temporary. External beauty is fleeting. It is always, always going away, but internal beauty gets stronger and stronger and stronger as time goes on. Think about it. What's missing in the world? 
What's missing in the world? Is it the externals? Is there a lack of creativity in the world? No, there is no lack of creativity. Is there a lack of talent in the world? No, there is no lack of talent in the world. Is there a lack of intelligence in the world? No, there is no lack of it. Is there a lack of physical beauty? No, no lack of that. There is a lack of love. What's missing is the stuff that's going on on the inside. It's matters of the heart. It's an internal beauty. The quality of your life is not going to be determined by the externals, but by the internals. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is not, am I becoming more beautiful on the outside? The question is, am I becoming more beautiful on the inside? And to take that from kind of an ethereal question What does that even mean to become more beautiful on the inside? Let's break it down to the questions that really that's talking about. Have I become a more beautiful person over the last few years? It's a question all of us should ask ourselves. Am I less prone to selfishness than I was two or three years ago? Am I less prone to self-pity? Am I less prone to envy? Am I less prone to vanity? Am I less sensitive to criticism than I was a few years ago? Am I wiser? Am I happier? Am I less anxious? Am I less concerned about the circumstances of my life? Am I less jealous of others? Have I become a more beautiful person? Am I growing in my ability to love, to show love, to demonstrate love, to communicate love, to receive love? Those are the things that are going to determine the course of your life and my life. It's your inner beauty. It's the internals, not the externals. So Samuel continues his search for the son that Jesse, of Jesse that God has chosen to be king. And in verse 8, it says that Jesse called uh, Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons <laughs> parade in front of Samuel. Seven of his sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen them. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? Well, Jesse says, reluctantly, well, they're still the youngest, but he's not here. I didn't invite him. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. That's a not so subtle way of saying, hurry up, Jesse. Like you should have had him here, so get him here. So he sent and had him brought in. And he was ruddy with a fine 
appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him for he, he is the one. Now, we got to unpack that because there's some confusing stuff in there. If you're not kind of into everything that's being said, the first thing I want you to notice is that David is not necessarily a bad looking guy. Like there's been a lot of focus recently in our culture on redefining external beauty. There's been a rejection of some of the traditional ways external beauty has been traditionally defined. In fact, there's almost been a hostility toward anyone who fits the classic idea of physical beauty. And the reality is that that's nothing new. Uh, over the centuries, every culture has defined physical beauty in different ways. Physical beauty has been defined and redefined in different time periods and within different ethnicities over and over again. Rejecting the current definition of physical beauty is just another, another form of focusing on external beauty. Let me say that again. Rejecting the current definition of physical beauty is just another form of focusing on external beauty. It's still an obsession with the externals. David wasn't chosen because he met cultures, his culture's definition of physical beauty, but he also wasn't chosen because he didn't meet his culture's definition of physical beauty. God wasn't saying, I need someone who doesn't fit the current cultural stereotype of beauty. God was saying, I don't care what he looks like on the outside. It's irrelevant to me. All I care about is the beauty on the inside. The other thing I want you to notice is that when Samuel asked if there are any other sons, Jesse says they're still the youngest. Now, literally, it means they're, they're still the smallest. It's a Hebrew word that kind of has a negative connotation. In essence, Jesse is saying, and some of you who maybe have pets or breed pets or whatever understand this. Some of you that come from different cultural backgrounds, this may not translate. But in essence, Jesse is saying, well, they're still the runt of the litter. Like they're still, I didn't think that you'd want to see the runt of the litter, but they're still the runt of the litter. David is the most unlikely of individuals to be chosen as king. He's not the oldest. He's not even in the top seven. You know, and that matters. You know, like seven in scripture is like the heavenly number. It's like the perfect number. And he's not even, he's number eight. He's not even in the top seven. At least if he had been number seven, we could have done something with that. But he's like the eighth. He's the eighth child. He hasn't even been invited to the table. Jesse didn't even bring him in from the fields. He's still just out tending the sheep. But that's the way God works. We are a testimony of that. That that's the way God works. That God's choices often seem very strange to us. 
because they so often are a deliberate rejection of what the world thinks is important. And you see that throughout Scripture. God chose Abel and not his older brother Cain. God chose Isaac and not his older brother Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not his older brother Esau. God chose the stuttering Moses and not Moses' eloquent speaking brother Aaron. God chose old Sarah over young Hagar. God chose Leah over her more beautiful sister, Rachel, and the list goes on and on. The people God chooses often lack social capital. They are not the ones with social or political clout. Social and political clout is irrelevant, irrelevant, irrelevant to God. God often chooses the ones everyone else has forgotten about, like the eighth child who's the runt of the litter, whose dad even forgot about him because he was out tending the sheep. But now we come, actually, to what I think is the key verse in the Scripture. It's the passage, it's the verse that often gets overlooked, or at least quickly passed by. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. I think that was significant. Guys, stick around. (laughs) I know he's just the runt. I know he's just your little brother. I know he's the eighth. I know he's the one that was out tending. But God has something for him, and I want you to be reminded of this. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. In the Hebrew, it says, from that moment on, the spirit of the Lord rushed through David. From that moment on, the spirit of the Lord rushed through David. It's really important to understand that the point of this story is not that David had a good heart and that all of his brothers had bad hearts and that's why God chose him. Because after David becomes king, there are times when David's heart is not so good and he does some really horrible and painful and destructive things. The point of the story is that those who God chooses, he always empowers. And God chooses the most unlikely of people. And you know that because God has chosen you. And God has chosen me. He has chosen broken, sinful people to accomplish his purposes and advance his kingdom in this world. He has chosen people who have been marred by the ugliness of sin. But when God looks at you, he does not see that ugliness. He sees the same thing he saw when he looked at David. 
He looks at you and God sees a king. He looks at you and God sees royalty. He looks at you and God sees someone who is beautiful beyond measure. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your resume, no matter what your religious background, God looks at you and sees someone who is beautiful beyond measure. Regardless of what you see when you look at yourself, that's what God sees. David, of course, is pointing us to another child of Bethlehem. A child who wasn't just forgotten by his father, but who on the cross was forsaken by his father. On the cross, we see someone who was beautiful beyond measure take on all of our ugliness so that we could take on all of his beauty. On the cross, Jesus laid down his beauty so that you and I could be made beautiful in the sight of God. So how do we walk out that beauty? That's the question, right? How do we walk out the beauty that is ours in Christ? How do we live beautiful lives? How do we live out our calling to advance God's kingdom in this world? The same way David did, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot listen to a message like this and think, yes, yes, it's the beauty on the inside that matters, not the not the success on the outside, it's the beauty on the inside that matters. So I am going to be a more beautiful person on the inside. You will just end up frustrated. You will end up discouraged. Because this is about more than just a resolution to do better. It's about more than just a resolution to be better. This is about a fresh anointing of God's Holy Spirit. This is about the Spirit of the Lord rushing through us, empowering us to do things that we could not do on our own. I want to end our service today with a time of anointing. And some of you... Um, I've been a part of our church maybe long enough to know that for us, anointing with oil is not some kind of magical thing. It is simply a reminder of the power of God's Holy Spirit. The power of God's Holy Spirit to accomplish everything in our lives that God wants to accomplish. The power of God's Holy Spirit to bring wholeness into our lives. The power of God's Holy Spirit to bring healing into our lives. 
the power of God's Holy Spirit to allow us to live beautiful lives and live out the calling that God has placed on our lives. And we are always in need of a fresh anointing of God's Spirit. Every day we need a fresh anointing of God's Spirit. And so as we worship, I just want to give you the opportunity to give expression to that if you would like today. And as we worship, we'll have some of our pastors up here who will simply anoint you with oil. We won't, we're not going to be praying with you. We will simply speak the words of anointing that you are anointed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and let it be a reminder of God's fresh anointing that we need every day in our lives. God, use this moment. May we be reminded of our total and complete dependency upon you. That we cannot live out this beautiful life that you have called us to without a fresh anointing from you. And so anoint us. As David was anointed by Samuel, anoint us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Empower us with your Spirit. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.